I'm going to start with this date, see if you can tell me what the significance is of this date. November 19th, 1989. I was one year. Who said that? Berlin Wall. Right. Now, why would I mention that? Well, remember, it's on that day, if you don't know, 30 years, the massive wall that divided East Berlin from West Berlin was opened up, and in about a year, it was totally dismantled, right? Two cultures of people. Yes. Oh, yeah? That's fantastic. Yeah, it was literally an event that shook the world. Everybody remembers that, right? I mean, if you were, I don't, because I wasn't, but one, but I love history. So uh, I remember seeing the YouTube clips. Um, so that, that's an important date. Now, why would I mention that date? Well, I want you to imagine that date as representing the time in which the wall between the Jews and Gentiles was broken down. So that's exactly what we're going to deal with today as we begin to look at Acts chapter 10. Uh, we know that this event is particularly significant because it's recorded for us three times in the book of Acts in different ways. So this is a pivotal point in the book of Acts. The theme is this, Christ breaks down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. Between all nations, really, and if I could paraphrase it in the way the Lord Jesus Christ says to the Apostle Peter regarding Jew and Gentile, Mr. Peter, you tear down that wall. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And so here's how I've divided the lesson. I'm going to give you the outline right at the outset so you won't have much work to do here. In verses 1 through 16, we've got two preparations. Two preparations. It's very important that you see that God is kind of weaving and braiding together these elements here. And two preparations, in verse, verses 17 through 33, we're going to switch to two visitations. Two preparations woven into two visits. Two visitations, then number three, one lesson. I'm not going to give you the lesson yet. Two preparations, two visitation, and one lesson lesson. And of course, this is a Bible study. So as we walk through verses 1 through 33, if you have any questions at all or anything that needs clarification, you just shoot that hand up and I will answer your question the best of my ability. All right. Verse 1, we're going to start with the first preparation. The first preparation is one of Cornelius. Really interesting guy here, this character of Cornelius. Here's what the Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 10. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. A cohort. Okay, so we've got a place, right, which means what? It's time to get into the map, all right? Here's the map. Uh, you've got Jerusalem right here. You know, Israel's kind of shaped like a kidney if you look at it, kind of weird. Uh, and we talked about Joppa last week, and Joppa is going to be about 20 to 30 miles towards the east. It's on the coast, and that's where Peter is right now. Caesarea from Joppa is going to be about 30 miles north. So this is, this is quite a distance. 30 miles doesn't seem that long to us. But if you were to walk to the St. John's Town Center and start now, you better start now. You'll get there maybe tomorrow, right? Uh, and so that's the idea is that this is, this, is, this is pretty far north. But the significance of Caesarea, who is it named after? Caesar, which tells you something about that city. What? 
It was the Roman capital, it was the provincial capital of Rome at that time, which meant this area was flooded with Gentiles, absolutely. Several Gentiles there. Uh, it was a place you wanted to visit. It was beautiful. King Herod had, had spent a lot of time building this as a, as a, as a testament to Caesar. Uh, but it was a very significant Gentile city. It had all the marks of the city of the people of the Gohim. You remember that Gohim is what the Jews would call Gentile. So there's a man called Cornelius. Clearly, he's a Gentile. It's a Gentile name. It's a centurion, a man who had oversight of a hundred people. A centurion was known for their discipline. He would have been called what we call an NCO, right? A non-commissioned officer. Some even believe that he was probably retired. So, but what's most important here is that he was of an Italian cohort, which tells you what? He's a Roman citizen, right? He's over Roman citizens. These were blue blood Romans that he oversaw. That's going to be significant later. Let me just tell you. Verse 2. Cornelius, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Devout essentially means pious. If a person is religious, that person is devout. But the phrase I'm really interested in is that phrase... God-fearing, fear of God. That had a very technical meaning to it. Here's what it meant. God-fearing meant, number one, that you were a monotheist, which meant one God. You believed in one God. You did not worship many different gods. Why is that a big deal in Rome? Yeah, they had a pantheon, right? They had several, several gods. And so this guy had, uh, uh, had one god in a city and culture that had many gods. So number one, you were a monotheist. But it also meant if you were God-feared that you didn't worship images, right? Which was blasphemous to the Jews, but of course was kind of the mark of paganism, right? Of pagan idolatry. And so if you were a God-fearer with respect to the Jews, that meant that you took in the basic moral standards of Judaism, which we would know as the Ten Commandments, right? That's the basic moral standards. Most significantly, if you were a God-fearer, we would say you went to church, but we know they went to synagogues, right? So he would go to synagogues and he would hear the word of God read. That was the technical definition of this one who feared God. The difference is, if you were a male, you were not circumcised, Therefore, even the females that would be under your headship were not ritually a part of Israel. And you, though you were a devout man, though you were a God-fearer, you were known as a Gentile. And I want you to sink that in. Because we know, we say the word Gentiles, but it's very, very significant. Because you can have respect for the one true God. You don't worship images. You have basic external moral standards that you follow. You want to hear the word of God. You want to be in the place where you know the true and living God is made known. But you won't be circumcised. Well, who can blame him, right? It was a pretty painful idea, especially if you're a man. And therefore, you're not really a Jew. And, and you're not just treated like a second-class citizen, therefore... You're treated like a dog. This is how Jews treated the Gentiles. Remember this. If you were a Gentile, let me just paint this picture. If you were a Gentile and you milked a cow, a Jew could sell that milk and make the proceeds, but could not drink that milk. 
If a Gentile touched your utensils, you had to wash them or put them through the fire to be sterilized. If for some reason a Gentile sleeps on your mat, you had to burn it and get a new one. If for some reason a Gentile was in your house, they weren't really supposed to be in your house. But if they were in one room alone, even if they didn't touch anything, you had to cleanse everything in the room. You never, ever, ever were to sit and eat with the Gentile, even if they honored your God, even if they wanted to be outwardly holy, even if they wanted to hear the word of God, never, ever associate with the dogs. The goyims. But you'll notice that there is something, what theologians have called, and it's a good term, prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. He was a devout man. He feared God. His household was in order. He gave many alms, which means he gave well to charity, like our benevolence offering. He, he gave alms. He gave to them always. Now, let me ask you this question. All this. Cornelius saved? No, he wasn't. And, and, and here's, here's why I say that. Uh, I don't think he was saved. And I'm, I'm pretty sure the scriptures attest that. We're actually going to get more of that to next week. But he was not saved at this point. But there's a very interesting lesson all there. It's prevenient grace. Grace that it, it doesn't prepare people to be saved. But it's grace that's operating in a person before they're saved. He realized there was something about this one true God that revealed himself in the book called the Old Testament just rang right with him. So he wanted to hear the word of God. He knew that those standards that this God set were right. It's provenient grace. It didn't save him. His sins were not forgiven, but there was a tremendous insight to what he was to do with his own household and so on and so forth. It's kind of like this idea. If you're a Christian like me, my provenient grace in my mind was the fact that I was raised in a Christian home and brought to church. That's prevenient grace. I wasn't saved through that. That's not ultimately the reason I was saved. I was saved because of God's glory and his wonderful mercy. It was saving grace that saved me. But the prevenient grace that God was working is that I was in church in the gospel every week having it preached to me. You know that too, right? If you came to a church service one day out of the blue and you don't know what was happening and you weren't saved yet, but you knew God was working on you, that's Provenient grace. And that's what we see at work here with this man called Cornelius. All right. It didn't save him. His sins are not forgiven, but there's tremendous insight. So now it's a time of time of prayer. Look at verses 3 to 6 now. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. That's ninth hour is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The first hour would be 6 a.m. with the sunrise. And as we learn later, 12 o'clock would be the sixth hour. So this is the ninth hour. And so it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And this is significant because you know who prayed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Jewish people. And so he was praying and an angel comes and he speaks to him and he calls him by his name. And then verse 4. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Not that they earned him anything or merited him anything, but they were evidences of God's provenient grace work in him. And then verse 
5. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, which means obviously he had some soldiers that that weren't devout, right? And then verse 8 says, and after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here he's got faithful servants. He doesn't want them to go AWOL because he's about to send them into a weird territory. So he sends them down 30 plus miles. They apparently go straight there because not only did they not rest at the house, but it doesn't take them really long to go through this trip. And so they're sent down to Joppa. But interestingly enough, even the town of Joppa is significant in the Bible. See, Peter was in Joppa. Peter knew the Old Testament. Peter didn't know what was coming, but he did know this. There was another prophet who in the Old Testament had resided in Joppa for a very brief period of time. Anybody want to take a guess who that Old Testament prophet was? Absolutely, it was Jonah. This prophet was also given a commission, as Peter will be, to go to the Gentile nations, the Ninevites. And he got on a ship and fled. His name was Jonah. And it must have impressed upon Peter. Think about this. Through all of this, psychologically even. Peter, you know where you are? You know what you better not do, Peter? So this is setting, and this is how Cornelius is prepared. 35 miles or so, the men are coming down. They're going through late in the afternoon, through the night, and early the next morning. It's a straight shot trip. They would have been guarded, of course, because they represent a Roman centurion. But that's only the first part of the preparation, because now Peter's going to be prepared. Look at verse 9 again. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city... Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Peter goes on the flat roof of this house of Simon the Tanner and the Lord, who is even sovereign over our gastrointestinal system, makes Peter really hungry. Verse 10, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. It was noon. It's lunchtime, he's going to pray, and this is God's sovereignty, by the way, because anybody here can fall asleep when you're really, really hungry? No, not me. I've got to eat first. So here he is, he's about to pray, he's really hungry, and these men are on their way, they're on the outskirts of the city. Peter falls into a trance, and another means in which God has a special revelation to him. What a dream he has. Look at verse 11, he saw the sky opened up. And as an object, like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. This is outstanding. It was noon. Probably representing, by the way, the four corners. As we remember in Zechariah, the north, south, west, and east. But it all had tied together. Just imagine this. You're in a trance and a big old napkin comes down. And it opens up. And it's like, a, it's, Peter's like in a, in a state here. It's almost like a horror movie. I don't know why I pictured this here, but this thing comes down right before him and then look what happens in verse 12. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. So this is what must have been in there. Let's just think about this. Moose, otters, beavers, birds, pigs, 
clams, shrimp, lobsters, snakes, all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. Why? Because it's clear. These are four-footed animals, wild animals, crawling creatures, most of which were unclean and the birds of the air. Peter must have been repulsed by this. Why? Because he was Jewish and these things were unclean because Jews didn't put unclean and clean animals together ever. You shouldn't even touch a pig. Don't even look upon it too much because it's unclean. In verse 13, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's response, by the way, is amazing because he's, he's a Jew. So he responds instinctively, even in the trance. You'd think if it was God who says it, you'd think he would say, yes, sir. But Peter says, no way. Look what he says. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. I've been taught this from my youth, Lord. No way do I eat shrimp, clams, and lobster. Yuck, it's unclean. Verse 15. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Now, this has significance. The most obvious, Peter, Jewish ceremonial dietary laws are done. There is nothing inherently unclean about a pig. There's nothing inherently unclean about eating a scallop if you so desire. There isn't even anything wrong about eating a vulture if that's what you want to eat. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy, which means you can eat your shrimp. Have your shrimp and your cocktail sauce. Enjoy it. You want to have lobster and butter if your cholesterol so allows for that, then enjoy it. Now, that certainly really does mean that. But obviously it means much more than that, right? Peter realizes in verse 28 what's going to happen here. Scoop down to 28 and look at this. It says, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. I want you just to mark that text in your Bible if you can. We're going to come back to that. And that's really the key part of this passage. I'm going to use this, the, the phrase, the words to paraphrase this because they're going out with important significance. Think about that. God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now, folks, you have to understand the psychological distress that must be going through Peter at this time. The Lord does it two more times, actually, in verse 16 of chapter 10. He says, this happened three more times, and, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Peter wakes up. What distress. The language here actually goes on to say that he was perplexed internally. This is shocking to Peter. This is making the earth turn the opposite direction in orbit. It is earth shattering. Peter had been told from his infancy to stay away from everything that is unclean in food, representing the way you stay away from unclean things, namely the people of the Goheem, the Gentiles. So understandably, he is internally distressed. Why is that? I propose to you that there are about to be two conversions that go on here. 
Cornelius and his household are going to be converted to Christ and Peter is about to be converted in his attitude toward the Gentiles. So God is in a dual way here preparing Peter and Cornelius and that prepares us the way for two visitations. We don't know how long this vision took. I don't think it was a quick vision, but this was powerfully impressed upon Peter. You know that? When, anybody ever had a nightmare, by the way, and, and it's long? It seems in the nightmare it's going on for days, and it takes you after you've woken up a while to get over it? So that, however long it took, the Bible says that Peter's internally perplexed, and just about that time where he is greatly perplexed, the men of Cornelius come knocking at the door. Verse 17, now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. Imagine that. He's up there, right? The contingent comes out. It would have been obvious that this was a Gentile soldier that comes with his entourage that's with him. And then verse 18, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. They come to the door and they ask. Peter doesn't even know who these people are. He's at the obscure Tanner's house. Can you imagine overhear, him overhearing them say, we're here for a name, man named Simon, surname Peter. He's here, I know he's here. What do you think Peter's probably feeling right now? Yeah, terrified, right? What's happening? I'm so terrified. I just wanted a sandwich, right? That's all he's probably thinking. Who are these people who know this about me? And then verse 19, it says, while Peter was reflecting on the vision... The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. The Spirit himself says to Peter, Peter, stop what you're thinking. Behold, that word selah, stop. Three men are looking for you. Wake up, verse 20. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Therefore, Peter, don't, don't have any misgivings. Don't let your views of the clean and unclean impact you. Come down to the door. When you see these Gentiles here to get you, remember I sent them. Cornelius sent them, yes, but on the back of Cornelius is the Holy Spirit orchestrating all of this because Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to tear down that wall. Jesus is saying, Peter, I've got work for you to do. That's how gloriously sovereign our God is. That's why his providence is so wonderful. Verse 21. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? So they go through the story here. Verse 22, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Peter you're called to preach to these people. And then look at this statement that is so remarkable at the beginning of verse 23. So he, Peter, invited them in and gave them lodging. The Jew did what was unheard of. He lodged with these three Gentiles, not only ate with him, the idea of inviting them to eat. They came into his house, into his room, and it doesn't say that he chucked all the furniture away. He didn't burn the things they slept on. He lodged with them. 
They slept. A remarkable case here. The last of verse 23, And on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. I love this. You see the change here? Listen, I just, I want to stop and say this. I, I really hope, and I really mean, I really hope, that today in our culture, if I were to ask you whether you considered having a person from a different race or culture in your house as marking it as unclean, that you would look at me with the disgust at the ridiculousness of that question. I really hope that that's the case. I'm weary about that, but I hope that's the case. And let me just say this. Racism and Christianity are like oil and water. They, They don't go together in any way, shape, or form. Absolutely not. And so the first visitation, Cornelius comes to visit Peter. Peter reciprocates by going with Cornelius. We'll touch on that a little bit more. Verse 24 says, on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. Apparently they're leaving. It's a long trip. Cornelius is there. He's waiting for them. Notice what he did though. What did Cornelius do? Yeah, he invited his family in. He invited his close relatives, his friend. When they heard they were gathering in their homes, they gathered their neighbors and their family. Peter's coming. This is magnificent. This is like the tearing down of the bricks of the Berlin Wall. I'm telling you. Verse 25, it says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. Hold up. Uh, He fell down and worshipped him as Peter would have understood it as, as a god. Verse 26 says this, But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. To raise somebody up, what do you have to do? you got to touch them. To lift somebody up, you have to physically hold them and bring them up. And this is exactly what happened. A Jew touches a Gentile and lifts him up and says, Stand up. I too am just a man. Just as you are, I am a man. That's the second most remarkable element in this text. Peter refuses to be treated by Cornelius as a god, and he refuses to treat Cornelius as a dog. Isn't that great? Listen to me. This is what the gospel does all the time. This cannot be done by anything or anyone else. In verse 27, as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. There are three social interactions now. Peter's, this is just have to be, this is light years of of growth for Peter. He started by entering into their home. He touches one now, and now he's having social interaction. He's surrounded by that which one chapter previous he feared would cause him and give him the cooties, right? This is amazing. By the way, this is what a preacher loves, uh, uh, many coming together. And so Peter's going to give now a framework for this in verse 28. He says, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. He breaks down barriers with his words. You know I'm a Jew. I know that as well. But this is the lesson that God has taught me. And I love this phrasing. Look at verse 29. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. 
So I ask, for what reason you have sent for me? This is amazing. He doesn't, he doesn't know. He actually doesn't know yet. Remember, this is a monotheist. This is one who understands the moral law somewhat. He wants to hear a word of God. And now Peter says, you tell me. And so Cornelius says in verse 30, Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer is heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon who is called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. This is the third time, by the way, this is mentioned in this text. And then verse 33. So I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. By the way, sidebar, what a beautiful picture of worship, right? Peter, I know enough about the true God to know that he's present with his people. He's not only high, holy, exalted, lifted up in the heavens, and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, but he's right here. This is a beautiful picture of worship. We all need to remember that verse, verse 33, when we come into the house of God, by the way. Are you here to hear the word of God? Then we are in the presence of God. He makes it very specific. We want to hear what you've been commanded by the Lord to say. Not what you just want to shoot your mouth off about. We want to hear all the things God has commanded you to say. And he kind of puts it back in Peter's lap. And he said, I don't know what it's going to be, but whatever God tells you, this is what we want to hear. Church, that, that's worship. It's a worship service. Get everybody you know to come in and hear God's word in the presence of God. And then notice the way Peter begins, which is what we're going to lead with next week. Notice what he starts with in verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Bottom line is, is there is no favoritism with God. That's the theme here. God doesn't play favorites. So one lesson. I told you we'd give one lesson. And here's the lesson before we close. Be careful how you use the term unclean. Beware what you call unclean. Here's what I mean by that. What sinful people do is unclean more or less. You understand that, right? You see it all around you. You take legitimate sexual function that God gives as a blessing and it becomes an instrument of uncleanness and adultery. You take the powerful, potent, God-given ability to speak and it becomes the uncleanness of false witness and bearing of such. Take your limbs that ought to be used to serve God in everything and serve your own lust. It's unclean. We could all agree in here that what sinners do is unclean, right? But friends, family, sinners themselves are made in the image of God. They are. You are not in that sense to regard them as unclean. Why? Because Christ has a design in his mercy and his grace to go to them without prejudice 
I didn't say to go to them to save them because not all of them will be saved. I did not say to go with them with a message of you're okay, I'm okay, postmodern thought because the message they will hear is that they're under the wrath of God unless they repent. But he does all of such without prejudice, without playing favorites by Jew or by Gentile. Listen to me. We don't try to make people what we are as we go to them with the gospel. But I tell you about Christ. I'm going to tell you about him. But you need to start dressing the way I dress. You need to start talking the way I do. You need to have a vocabulary. Now, you might not say that, but that's the way we communicate it. And that's our attitude towards people like this. Somehow others are inferior because they aren't Southern Baptists. That's not the way God works, folks. The Berlin Wall has been broken down ethnically. It's not race, but grace. Berlin Wall broken down, whether black or yellow or white or any shade in the middle. No prejudice. It is out in the Christian church. What's more is that it's not only no prejudice, it's love that's shown. Love that says, no, you stand up. You are a man just like I am, and I don't treat anyone like a dog because I'm concerned that you know Christ first and foremost. It means no national favoritism. Well, we're Americans. That means we're such fine Christian people. We know about freedom. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't work that way. My denomination, well, we really are better than others. God doesn't work that way, folks. You can erect your Berlin Wall toward other believers in Christ the same way Jews did towards the Gorhim, but from this time forward, there is no elitism in the Christian church at all. Listen to me. Jesus does not say to Peter through the vision, let no Christian that I've created to be called unclean. He says, let no one, nothing I've created to be unclean. Peter doesn't go to Cornelius and say, I'll treat you as clean as soon as you become a Christian. He doesn't say that. You're a man the same way I am. You are made in the image of God, and I've got no right to call you unclean. Let me put it this way. If you reject certain people, their color, the way they look, whether the guy wears an earring in his ears or not, whether the woman has tattoos or not, their background, their language, their customs, their dress, if you reject them insofar as you are concerned, you have excluded them from Christ. Here's why. Because you are God's instrument to show his love, his grace, and his kindness of Christ to people. And we often miss this, don't we? Friends, listen to me. Every person you or I meet in the street is made in the image of God. When they profane the image of God, our response is to be brokenhearted even more because they profane the image of God being made in His image. But we don't hate them. I just... I just can't fathom how it is that Christians are so surprised that unregenerate people act like sinners. Where's the shock in that? As were you, but for grace. You are the instrument. You are the light of Christ that they will see. And you might not think 
That these people, people like this, feel your hatred to them, feel your self-righteousness as the Jews would feel towards the Gentiles, but they do. It's in your attitude. It's in your approach to them. Friend, they're made in the image of Christ. I'm going to tell you a very sad story as we close. Mohandas Gandhi. You know Gandhi, right? May have been very useful in India for many purposes. No doubt he was. He sure did have some strange ideas, though. Let's put it that way, right? Civil disobedience actually probably being the least strange of his ideas. But he was a Hindu. Did you know that Gandhi studied in England? I believe he actually studied in Oxford, if I'm I'm not mistaken. What many people don't realize is at that time when he was studying in England, Gandhi became exposed in Christian England to the gospel. He read the gospels. He was intrigued by the gospels. And he said to to himself, this is in his autobiography, if this religion of this Jesus could be introduced in India, it would break down the caste system. So what does he do? You want to learn about Jesus? Where do you go? The church. And I don't know what church he went to, but it was a professed Christian church. And he was told when he went in as a man, very conspicuously not English, he was told by an usher, there is no seat for you in this church. Why don't you go to a place where you'll be ministered to by your kind? I just, I can't help but to think what it would have been like if that usher had said, we're so thankful to have you here. What seat would you like? Take mine. Here's where I sit every Sunday, but I want you to have it because it's just a seat. Take mine. You want to meet the preacher? Would you like to speak to him? You have questions about Christianity? I'll give you the best seat in the house. See, Gandhi left and wrote that the Christian church has its own caste system. It's no different than what we have as Hindus. Friends, may that never, ever, ever happen in this church. Ever. What God has made, don't call it unclean. Now there's far more to the story next week, but I just ask you, church family, as I ask myself as we examine this text together, if you have racial prejudice, if, if you play favorites even towards other denominations or other nations, well, I pray that you would ask God to change your heart and convert you in the sense that he converted Peter to bust down the Berlin Wall that's in your heart. And when you come to people of any race, any color, any tongue, any tradition, just as people, you come with open arms that you might show to them the love of God in Jesus Christ who in glory is going to smile as he sees people of every tribe, tongue, and every nation praise the excellency of his grace forevermore. Jew and Gentile alike. That's all I've got. Any questions or comments or thoughts? I got a little preachy there, didn't I? Just can't help myself. Any comments, questions, or thoughts about anything in the text? All right. Well, that being said, let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you forgive us of our carnal ways, or the ways... We're prone to discriminate. And Lord, we do such silly things like blame it on our culture and just say, that's the way I'm raised and I just can't help myself. Lord, we know that's not true. We know it's because of sin. 
And Lord, you've called us to repent of sin. So we pray that we'd repent of sin. Lord, you forgive us for our prejudices that come out of ignorance, that comes out of unbelief or pride or hardness of heart. Our Lord, when we see a man or a woman made in the image of God, defiling that image, may we not hate the image of God, but may we be brokenhearted over defiling. Lord, we see so many nations, the beautiful way in which you've made the world. Oh, Father, please don't let us rebuild Berlin walls in our souls. Holy Spirit, tear them down. May we embrace men and women, boys and girls, but not just do that which the world can do. Father, may we do it such that through our arms and through our homes, through our words, through our love, Jesus Christ and all the marvels of his saving grace might be known to the glory of his name and the building up of his kingdom. But we thank you for your word and we thank you. We thank you, Father, as you extended the gospel to the Gentiles. Because if that were not so, if Acts 10 doesn't happen, then we're not here. Praise God for your mercy and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.